Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview and I'm honored to have Scott Delusio with me. Scott is a fellow author and a man who has gone for darkness. He has been on the tip of the spear as far as the military is concerned and has been out there in Afghanistan and was deployed and like so many young men has seen his fair share of trauma but more importantly has suffered severe personal trauma as part of this journey and it is he has written about his, his trials and tribulations and it is it's a moving read and so I'm, I'm truly truly honored to have Scott with me welcome to my show Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and, and share my, my story with you and your audience. Scott, thank you so much for being on my show. You have been deployed to Afghanistan. And I wonder if you can tell me a bit, how did you get into the military? Was that something that you always wanted to do? So, so growing up, my, my brother and I, we grew up in a very patriotic family. We, we were brought, brought up to look up to the military and the, uh, the first responders around us and, and respect them and, and everything like that. It never was really on my radar as something that I was going to do. Um, I, I don't think it, it was something that we, we always looked up to these people. Um, after desert storm, I remember, uh, I remember going to uh, an Air Force base near us and greeting the troops coming back home. And that that was yeah. like the, you know, some some kids growing up look up to Michael Jordan or, you know, some of these sports stars or whatever. But that was like for us, the the people that we were we were looking up to. So that was an incredible moment. But uh, after 9-11, uh, so I was in college when 9-11 happened. And um, when when that happened, I was just so enraged at everything that took place. I, I considered just dropping out of school right then and there and going and joining the military. Uh, I didn't know anything about the military at that point. Um, and I knew, but I did know something about myself. And I knew that if I was to drop out of school, I probably wasn't going to pick it back up later on in life. Uh, so I said, I, I slept on that decision. I decided, you know, I'm going to, I started something, I'm going to finish it. And so I decided I was going to finish college. Uh, and if there's going to be any sort of military response, it was probably not going to be a quick in and out like Desert Storm was or anything like that. It was it was probably going to be over several years. And and I'd, I'd get my chance to to join in the fight if if it was still going on. Um, so fast forward a few years, um, my brother, uh, my younger brother, Stephen, he uh, went to school up in Vermont and he met a guy who was in the Vermont army national guard. And he got to know a little bit more about what it was to, what it meant to be in the, the national guard and in the military and everything. And, and he decided that was right for him. So he decided to, to join the, the military then. And so overnight, my younger brother went from this, this kid who used to look up to me as the older brother to now I was looking up to him as he 
all of a sudden became this, this soldier. And now I'm looking up to him. Like he made a incredibly brave and courageous decision to join the military. Um, and then about a year later, maybe not quite a year, maybe nine months later or so, I heard a report in the news that, that said that the military was struggling to meet their recruiting numbers. And that just got under my skin. And I said, where in the world are all these people from back during 9-11 who were ready to move mountains to go get revenge and payback and everything. Where are all these people? Why are they having so much trouble? And then I realized I am those people and I still haven't done anything. I still haven't joined the military. I haven't done anything. Uh, and I really had no excuses. I had nothing but excuses, I should say, I, but none of them were good. Um, and so I, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm young enough. I'm fit enough. I'm perfectly capable. Why not me? Why shouldn't I go be part of the solution here to, to the problem that they're having? So, so I did, I, I signed up for the, the Connecticut army national guards, cause that's where I lived at the time. And, um, and decided that I wanted to, to join and, and serve in that way. When was that? When did you join up? So that was 2005 that I joined. That's interesting. Um, and, so we've got four yeah. years there, more or less, um, that you had to ponder about your decision. So this was not just like so many young men in the past who were joining up for because they got swept up with this kind of wave of nationalism, patriotism, uh, regardless now if you look at the, the First World War or Second World War, those kind of generations. Mm -hmm. So you had you had a kind of a reality check. Although one wonders, of course, what the news reports were that you guys were seeing from Afghanistan at that time. What what was actually really the, the picture that was portrayed in the media about the war over there? You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't remember so much what the media had to say about what the war was like at that point. Um, at, the thing that mattered to me most was that the country needed soldiers. They needed people. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to serve my country. Whatever they needed me to do, I was willing to do it. And, and if that meant that they needed, uh, you know, infantry soldiers, which is what I ended up doing, uh, then I, I would do that. You know, I'd, I'd be on the front lines if, if need be. If they needed uh, people to do mechanics or whatever, I'd learn how to do that. And I, I would figure that type of stuff out. Uh, you know, whatever it was that they needed, I, I wanted to be there and, and do it. Uh, I honestly didn't care what the, the reports were in the news about about the wars because Iraq was going on at the, the same time. And I, I could have just as easily been deployed there as well. Um, I, I didn't really care about that stuff. I, I just knew that the country needed people and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to serve. And that was obviously still the time when Fallujah had not yet occurred, when when all those those nasty battles were indeed dozens and hundreds of Marie, of um, of US soldiers and allied soldiers lost their lives uh, had occurred. So again, this was this was still a a war that probably everyone thought it's the war of the righteous. You are doing, you're going in there to do something that is really, really wonderful and really good. Let it be Afghanistan or let it be Iraq. Um, so now I understand all that. But in your case, this was more a story of you spreading your wings, of you actually growing up and wanting 
to prove your mettle, wanting to, to, to serve your country, being patriotically brought up as you were. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So that is, that is if, you, if you come from this background with this core belief, then, wow, this is your time. Were you already in a job then, or did you have to, to hand in resignations, or what, what happened? So you know when I was when I was in college and originally thinking about the, joining the military, I didn't know the first thing about the military, and and so I just assumed that if you're going to be in the military, it's it's full time or nothing. Uh, but with the National Guard, it's it's a little bit different. So you do have to go away to basic training, and that is full time, and and you're you're gone for three four months or depending on your job, it could be longer. Um, but when you come back, when you're in the National Guard, you only train for one weekend a month and two weeks out of the year. Mm -hmm. So it's really a part-time job. And then, of course, you can get called up to go overseas or, or for other missions and things like that. But um, so I, at the time, I did have a job. It was my first job out of college. And, uh, you know, it was it was a good job that I had. And uh, I was fortunate enough that I, I didn't have to resign. I just had to let them know that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be taking a, a few months to go to training. And, you know, this is the schedule. This is what what mm. to expect. And then my job was waiting for me when I got back. So uh, so that was that was a nice part about it um, mm. was I, I didn't have to just totally uh, throw everything away that I had worked for all those years through college and, and struggling, you know, trying to find a job and everything like that. I didn't, I didn't have to throw all that stuff away. That was still waiting for me when I got back. Um, and, and had I just joined the military right, uh, right from college, I probably would have gone active duty where you're full-time, a full-time soldier, because I didn't know any different. And, and I probably would have just gone that, that route. Um, but since my brother joined before me and he joined the national guard, he, he was able to kind of show me the way of, of kind of having the best of both worlds. Which is beautiful, isn't it? And, yeah. and your national guard is the same as territorial army in the UK or, or yes. here in, in New Zealand. So there are similar schemes around the world and uh, where people can combine the lives uh, the two, two, two different lives. So that's brilliant. Yeah. The only thing, the only difference is, of course, that that most territorial armies, it is a beautiful lifestyle. It's a kind of a, of of yeah something that that young men and women do. Uh, then suddenly, when that country moves into war and actually part of the territorial force or, or the national guard gets actually deployed, suddenly, hang on, this is a different different playground now. So, but you, for you, that was never an issue because you were a patriot. You said, I actually want to be part of that. So let's go out there and let's do what it takes. Um, exactly. So, and you were, you were. Uh, National Guard, you were infantry, basic infantry. What was your military speciality within the infantry? Uh, so, so in the the US, the, the infantry is is like a military specialty in and of itself. Yeah. So, um, so that was that was my job was was an infantry soldier. I was uh, eventually by the time we deployed to Afghanistan, I was a sergeant, and so I, I was in charge of uh, several soldiers, and uh, that that responsibility grew as as time went on at, while we were over there. But um, it was it was a um, you know a leadership position and as well as a, a ground fighting position as well. So it was not a heavy weapons platoon or, or any kind of subspeciality within the infantry there. No, it's just no. boots on the ground, hardcore, 
Okay, there you go. Yes, cool. yes. Um, when did you get actually deployed? When was the first time? When was that on the cards? Yeah, so that was in late 2009. We we were activated and we began our, our pre-deployment training where we would go and uh, just qualify on all of our weapons and practice uh, the drills and everything else that you need to do just to make sure that we're, we were capable of fighting a war overseas and and so it's just something that you, you have to go through they they run through all these uh, you know various testing medical testing mental uh, fitness and they give you all the vaccinations you feel like a pincushion <laughs> with all the, the things that they give you um but um and then when we actually got to Afghanistan it was in early 2010 so um, so yeah, it was, it was early 2010 when we got there and we, we were deployed to the Eastern part of the country in a area called Torkum. Uh, it, it's right on the Pakistan border, uh, along the Khyber pass, which was a major supply route for NATO supplies, um, for people who are unfamiliar with Afghanistan, it, it, it being a landlocked country, a lot of NATO supplies were being, uh, delivered through cargo ships. And the closest port is in Pakistan. And so uh, they take the, sh the containers off the ships, put them on trucks, drive them into Afghanistan. And then uh, that border crossing where we were at w was uh, pretty much where most of the supplies would come through. Mm -hmm. And so we had to secure that area. That was our job there. We, we secured the area to, to make sure that uh, not only did the supplies get uh, through without being uh, interrupted by terrorist activity and things like that. But also uh, the Pakistani military was not the friendliest towards the Americans. And so they frequently would shut down the border and all these trucks would be backed up at the border and they wouldn't be able to come through. Mm -hmm. And so by us being there, they, they shut down the border a lot less frequently when we were there. And you're already <laughs> pointing towards the very, very shady kind of war that was being fought there. You think, yeah, the Taliban are the baddies and we are the goodies and, and in between the, the population, they must be so glad that we are there. Yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you have got Pakistan, who has been basically a haven for the Taliban to, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it gets a bit hot on the Afghani side. Well, we go across to, to Pakistan uh, cool our heels a bit and and let it all let the dust settle and then we go sneak back over the mountain passes and and keep going um Correct, yes. that all very much with the pakistani um support and uh, if they, they probably don't want to hear that but yeah that was what it was um so very difficult very difficult because already you have got this kind of frustration and this kind of 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 what are we doing here when in the reality is different. Did you know about that when you went there or did it all come as a surprise when you were feet on the ground? You know, when, when we were doing our pre-deployment training, we got a lot of training on what to expect when we got there. So, yeah. so we did have a pretty good sense of what the, the attitude of the people there and, yeah. and things like that would be. Um, but the thing is, the the way the country is set up is very tribal. 
And so each, each little group of people have their own attitudes and feelings towards what's going on. And, and it's not like you can say every Afghan person feels this way about anything because it's, it's more like this one group feels this way because maybe they, they got some support from the Americans and so they're pro-Americans and they, they want to help support the Americans because the Americans were helping them and they want to continue that relationship. And so they'll, they'll, uh, they'll behave nicely towards the Americans, but then the next group over might have, you know, had something bad happen to them and, or to one of their people. And now they hate Americans and they want to do everything to uh, destroy the, the troops that are, are over there. So, uh, you know, it, it's very tricky. You don't know who is going to be with you or against you. Um, you know, everyone dresses very similarly over there. It's not like, uh, you know, in World War II, when you had, you know, the German army wore the German army uniform and the American army wore the American army uniform and you knew who, who was good and who was bad and, and everything. And it, it was very easy to tell then, but when you go over to Afghanistan, it's, it's impossible to tell until the bullets start flying and, you know, someone's actually pointing a rifle at you or, or some other weapon at, in your direction. Uh, that's, that's really the only time you're going to tell if, uh, someone's, someone's good or bad, you know, and, and they can, they can try to talk their way out of just about any kind of situation. So it, it's very, very likely that, that you could let someone slip by, uh, who might not be very good, but they, they just were a smooth talker, you know? In 2010, how had the rules of engagement at that time in Afghanistan developed? Because, I mean, there were there was some quite some ups and downs when you look at what soldiers, how they were supposed to react to to the so-called enemy. Um, there were times when they were when you guys might have as well taken slingshots with you because you were not allowed to shoot anything unless the, the guy was actually pointing the pistol there. Um, and there were other times when things were a little bit more loose. What were the, the rules of engagement for you? They were pretty restrictive for us. Um, when we were there, we were given uh, instructions that we had to use what we called the four S's, uh, shout, shove, show, shoot. Uh, and that was like an escalation of force. So, mm -hmm. so at first, if someone was, uh, let's just say there's a restricted area that they're not supposed to come into, you shout at them and, and tell them, you know, to get back as best as you can. Obviously there's a language barrier, do what you can to, to get that. If you have a, an interpreter with you, even better than that, that way they can, they can use the native language. Um, but generally speaking, when you have a soldier who's screaming at you, you pretty much stop in your tracks, right? But if you are continuing to advance, then then that's a problem. Um, the, the next step would be to shove them, you know, pu push them away. And and so if if the language didn't didn't work out, they they probably can get the idea that, okay, I'm not supposed to be here. Um, if that doesn't work and they continue advancing towards you, then you're supposed to point your weapon. That's show. Uh, so point your weapon at them. That's sort of a universal language. I, th I think everyone will, will understand what that means. And if, if all three of those steps fail, then you're finally authorized to be able to shoot um, in, in that situation. And, and so it, it was, it was pretty restrictive in that sense, because uh, in a lot of cases, if, if the person wasn't actually shooting at you, 
they they needed to be close enough for you to actually be able to put your hands on them to shove them in order to shoot. You know, it, it wasn't like you could, uh, you know, spot some enemy activity going on uh, across a valley and be able to engage them. You know, it, it was unless they were shooting at you first, um, you you basically had to almost let just let them go. And I think that is so important to realize, isn't it? It is, if you're not a soldier, you get this kind of, of I don't know, you, things that Hollywood portrays in films or your own misconceptions. But if you actually look about a difficult environment to work in and burnout, if you go to, to, the, to any kind of business, then the, the key factors that contribute to that is, is you being helpless, you being not in control, um, you being constantly under stress, Stress, with change demands, often difficult people to work with. Well, <laughs> how much more? How much more can you fit a toxic work environment? And therefore, if you were actually now to extrapolate for that and, and say, well, okay, if I'm now, if this was a business, I would feel like shit. I would constantly be on edge. Well, there you are, deployed for six months, 12 months into, uh, into such an environment that is not very healthy, is it? No, it, it's not really. It it caused a lot of stress because uh, there were there were times where you know I may have you know acted a little bit differently had you know the the circumstances had the rules uh, been a little bit different. Um, you know, if they were a little bit more relaxed, um, you know. Fortunately, uh, in, in the cases that I'm, I'm referring to, they were what they were. And uh, I, I didn't act in, uh, in shooting or, you know, overreacting in, in that, that case, because, um, you know, it turned out that would have been the wrong thing to do. Um, it, it just was given the circumstances. Uh, for example, one, one time there was a guy who, who was, uh, was deaf and so he didn't hear the shouting, you know, and, and so he, he continued towards us. Um, and, and I realized, I realized as he was coming towards us that he, there was something off with this person because usually whenever, whenever there's like a loud, sharp noise that, that someone makes, mm -hmm. there's a reaction. You know, if I was to yell in your face right now, you would, you would have like a little startled response, right? It was, it was nothing. It was like, no one was home with this guy. And so I knew there was something wrong. I just, you know, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Um, it, it turns out afterwards, my in, interpreter was able to talk with the person and, and figure out what was going on. turns out he's deaf. And, and so we were able to figure that out and that's why uh this happened but but he was this guy was entering into a restricted area um yeah. we we were keeping it clear of of uh people for for various reasons and um you know had the rules of engagement been a little bit more relaxed i probably could have shot him before uh finding out what had taken place so you know in a way it was a good thing uh in in that particular circumstance but i i know for for sure that there were other situations that people found themselves in where they got too deep into the situation without being able to act. And, and it caused, it caused some, some bad, uh, some bad situations to pop up. Including deaths on both sides. There was uh, sure. no two ways around it. And let's, so let's right. not, let's not use too polite a language because 
we need to understand that we are talking about extreme violence and we are talking about hours of boredom and absolute sheer moments of terror in which the fraction of a second different reaction can be the, the difference between uh, life and death. So, therefore, it is such a bizarre environment in which you had to work um, and it is this constant this constant pressure that can that not can that will inevitably change you and that is sometimes definitely yeah that is what we need to to spell out very very clearly because there are often enough people out there who think god goodness i mean i mean why can't they come back to normal life and why are there so many veterans out there uh who have difficult readjusting i'm jumping the gun here but i want to actually lay the scene i want to explore with you what is going on in the psyche of any man or woman who is deployed under these circumstances under such an environment so and i think that is the the the, the thing we need to realize so here you were and as it so happened, you were actually deployed in Afghanistan down there, mainly focusing on that border crossing. But what, 80 miles away, <laughs> there was your brother and equally yes. being deployed as it so happens. I mean, what's the chance of that? Right. Well, you know, it turns out with the National Guard soldiers, uh, so we... Each state in the United States has uh, its own National Guard uh, unit. So, uh, if I if I wanted to join the National Guard in in one state, uh, I would I would join it here. And then, uh, chances are, if if I had a sibling, they would probably be part of that same National Guard unit if they chose to join as well, because there's there's only so many units within the same state, right? So, uh, if that unit gets deployed. Chances are the whole the whole family. It's going to be a family reunion going over there, right? Um, now, in my my brother's case, with brother in in my case, uh, he was in the Vermont Army National Guard, and I was in the Connecticut Army National Guard, and uh, the two units that we were in just happened to fall under the same brigade, and the deployment was a brigade wide deployment. So we all went, you know, um, you know, we were, we were thinking that somehow maybe one of us would go and not the other one or, or something like that. But it, it turned out that, uh, you know, the, the two of us ended up going, uh, at the same time to Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, he had previously deployed to Iraq, um, right. uh, a few years earlier. So he was familiar with deployments and how, what to expect and, and being in combat and everything. Uh, this was my first deployment. Um, but since it was his second, I really didn't worry about him at all while he was, he was over there. I, I figured this is, this is not his first time overseas. He knows what to expect. And, um, you know, the thought of him being injured or killed just didn't even cross my mind. It, it was something that was such a foreign concept. I didn't even entertain it for for a minute um and i i think the reason why was because uh if i was worried about him and his safety i would not be able to do my job i would be constantly worried about him and his safety as the the big brother that's i think that's just what you do as a as a big brother you you have to worry about your your younger brother even though he was an adult and he was uh you know a well-trained soldier he he knew what he was doing uh you know I, I still would worry if, if I that thought even crossed my mind. And I, I think I just, as a defense mechanism, I just chose not to uh, think that way. Mm. 
And whilst, whilst we've heard your story, uh, I know that your brother had two tattoos, and I think those tattoos say, um, you know, this is the picture that says a thousand words. Uh, tell us a bit about tattoos, and I think then just we know who your brother was, who, what a man he was. Yeah, he actually had uh, he actually had three tattoos. Okay. One of them, yeah, one of them was on his back, and it was the infantry uh, motto. It was a, there's a symbol uh, that that has uh, it's like a shield with a sword in the middle of the the shield, and on top it says "Follow me." And so he had that tattooed on his back. Um, it really just. <sighs> just a testament to his leadership. You know, he, he was a, a leader through and through. He was, uh, he was definitely a, uh, a strong soldier and, and he took his jobs very seriously. Um, another, uh, tattoo that he had was, um, it was a picture of, uh, an Iraqi woman who was on the inside of his, his arm, like on his bicep. And, uh, this, this woman, when he was in Iraq, she came out of her house and she flagged down his uh, his his convoy and and told him to stop and told them that there was an IED up the road. And if they continued down that way, they were surely going to be killed. And so they they turned around. They they didn't go that way. They went around a different way to to get to where they were going. Um, and a few days later, they went back to that area to go thank the woman for helping them and, and telling them what was lying ahead. And when they discovered, uh, went to her house and discovered her, um, her and her family were all beheaded um, because the the people over there they didn't like that she was helping out the Americans and they, they killed them. And so he put that tattoo on his arm as a tribute to her and her courage and selflessness, um, being willing to help people that she didn't even know. She had no reason to care if they drove into an IED or not. Um, but she gave her life and, and ultimately cost the lives of the rest of her family in order to save my brother and, and the people he was with. Um, and so he had that tattoo for, for that tribute as well. Uh, and the third tattoo he had was, was a cross on, on his arm. And, um, you know, that, that cross was a symbol of his, his faith and his religion. And, uh, you know, it was a, you know, just, just a, another piece of who he was. And, and it was a, uh, you know, I, I think a, maybe a fitting fitting way to uh, just put that on display. I think just seeing and knowing these stories, I think I would have followed your brother. Was he my leader? Um, so it is, it is, it, uh, that story is so beautiful. Um, and it just shows that his heart was so much in the right place. Uh, so he knew what he let himself in for. You, to a certain degree, not, you could say, uh, because mm -hmm. you were a little bit more blue-eyed and, and rose-colored kind of, of glasses on. You had not been there, after all. Yet no one had really shot at you and right. really tried to take your life or hurt you in the, in the most brutal way. So how 
did you change? May I ask, how did you change in your first firefight? Well, so the first time our, our unit came under fire, there, there was a sniper that was taking aim at our, uh, like the entry control point at, on our base. So uh, we had, we had guys stationed there. Um, so just in case anybody was trying to gain entry that, that wasn't supposed to be there, um, they were, they were there to, to stop them. And the sniper took fire uh, on, on our guys who were, were there. And I was not at that, that entry uh, control point, but as soon as the first shot went off, uh, there was um, a call for all of us to, to get to our positions to, to go defend and the base. And so within a matter of, of a couple minutes, the entire base was surrounded by American soldiers who were ready to def defend the base. Um, 360 degrees all around, we, we were ready, ready to defend it. And so I, I was actually sleeping at the time. And so I, I just had shorts and a t-shirt on and I just grabbed my body armor and my rifle. And I, I ran up to the top of this, this uh, mountain that was on the other side of our base. And Actually, we, it's kind of, kind of a funny story. We had these civilian contractors on our base and they had the nicest equipment, uh, that, that money could buy. And we're, we we're stuck with what, what you would call military grade equipment, which a lot of people are like, oh, that must be great. But military grade equipment, just as a reminder is, is, uh, contracted out to the lowest bidder. So, so, <laughs> so with that in mind, we, we, uh, had all the civilian contractors running past all these nice fancy uh, uh, tractor things that they had on, on the base and they were running into the bunker to, to run for cover. And so they left the keys to these tractors, uh, you know, inside of the tractors. And so we, we jumped inside of them and we piled all the guys up there. It was like a flatbed kind of truck uh, thing. And, and we, we piled guys in the back of there. And, and instead of taking like five to 10 minutes to, climbed to the top of this mountain and being all out of breath, we drove up in one of these nice fancy uh, tractors that they had. And uh, we were up there in a matter of 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe. And uh, when, when we came back, the, the guys were like, where did our, uh, where did the tractor go? It was like, oh yeah, we, we left it up there. Sorry. <laughs> did you but, get a bollocking for that? Uh, because ball, bottom line is, you know, one RPG uh, would have taken you out, would have taken a whole sure. bunch of you out compared with, with, you know, running a bit more dispersed. Uh, or did right. you actually, did people say, okay, good on you. Well done. You know, it was it was one of those things where the location where we were was was inside the base enough with an, enough distance from right. wherever anyone would be able to shoot at us with with an RPG or whatever that it wasn't even really a concern to us. We were just thinking, how do, how do we get to the top of this mountain as quick as possible? Um, because we didn't know what lied on the other side if sure. if there were going to be people coming up and over, sure. and we needed to get there quickly to to defend that side. So so we just. We just stole the tractor and, and drove up, and <laughs> it was fine. Um, it, Good. We never really got in trouble for it, but um, I, I think I think the guys, the contractors who were there, were were happy that we were there to protect them uh, because they, they didn't want to be fighting, you know, in, in uh, you know what we would call the Alamo or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, the, exactly. the, the last stand or whatever. So, um, 
So that was the first time that I was exposed to, you know, any sort of uh, mm-hmm. firefight. I, I didn't actually get engaged in, in, in a direct uh, contact in, in that, that uh, particular uh, uh, incident. Um, but the first time that I actually was in a firefight where there was actual, you know, more than one or two people who were, were shooting, um, it was, it was actually the day that my brother was killed. Um, and it was, it was maybe about 20 minutes after I found out that he was killed. And, uh, so I, I find out, uh, just take you back a little bit on, on that day. Um, so my unit was, was on a mission We're we're, uh, working jointly with the Afghan army. So we flew in to this remote village uh, late the night before, and we sat on top of this this uh, mountain right outside of the village and waited for daylight. Uh, the Afghan army at the time didn't have any night vision capabilities or anything, so we couldn't operate at night. Um, so we had to wait for the sun to come up. And so we worked our way through the village and um, we, we were there kind of more as, as an advisory kind of role. If, if things got out of control, we were there to help out, but the Afghan army was supposed to take the lead. Ultimately it was, it was supposed to be their country and their, their mission to secure it and everything. So uh, ideally we weren't going to be there forever. And so we need to let them uh, get some practice uh, of going through and, and clearing these, these villages and stuff. So, so that's, that's what we did. Um, and as we're going through this village, uh, the commanding officer, my commanding officer, uh, called me directly on the radio. And the way the chain of command works, usually the commanding officer will work a message through the chain of command. And there were several layers of people between him and me. Uh, so it was very unusual for him to be reaching out to me directly. And the only time that something like that would happen is if I did something extraordinarily well, or I really messed something up, like something was really bad. And I was thinking to myself, I can't think of anything extraordinary that I did that day. That was just so, you know, great that, that he needed to to contact me. And so now I'm thinking, Oh shoot, what is, what's the problem here? What's going on? Um, I, I, and I was rattling my brain trying to figure it out. I, I, I couldn't think of anything that I really royally messed up, you know, that it was just so bad that he would be reaching out to me. So when I linked up with him, he told me that my brother uh, was involved in an ambush and that his, uh, his unit was involved in an ambush and that he had gotten hit. Now, remember before I, I said that uh, it hadn't even crossed my mind that he could be injured or killed. And so at that point, I'm thinking, OK, well, he's hurt. Okay, we're we're in combat. That that makes sense. That I I can I can wrap my head around that that problem. And so I I was thinking, what are the logistics? How do I get to where he is so I can help him in any way that I can? If he needed blood or you know an organ or something like that, if if I could give it to him, I I want to be there for him. And, and even if I didn't have anything, I'd like to be there just you know for moral support to to help him out. And uh, you know, but it it still didn't compute in my head that he, he could possibly be killed. And so when the commanding officer told me that, no, he, he actually had been killed. I I was just in a complete state of disbelief. I was uh, just shocked and saddened and just so, you know, uh, 
like anyone else just struck with grief and and it was it was just such a, a terrible terrible moment mm. um and then like i said about 20 minutes later our, our own unit started taking fire from the village that we had just come out of uh clearly the afghan army did not do a great job clearing that village of the weapons and mm. and other things like that because there were there were rpgs that were getting fired uh rocket propelled grenades and and things like that and and if they did a good job, they would have found things like that, but they clearly didn't, or if they did, they overlooked it and, and let it go, um, you know, for whatever reason. But, um, you know, so I had to put the grief aside and I had to turn on the army mode. Not, I had to turn off grieving brother and turn back on to, to the army, uh, side of me. And, you know, I, I was overwhelmed with anger at, at that point. Um, the, the anger that I had was, was that I, I was mad at the Afghans who, all of them, quite frankly, for not being able to handle their country uh, and, and take care of the, the things that they needed to take care of and require people like my brother to come there and get killed. It, it just completely angered me. And I had these brief flashes in my head of I just want to go back down into this village and kill every single person that I see, you know, seriously, I, I was, I was like, I, I wanted to just go and do that. But I knew that if I, if I lost my cool like that, first off, I wasn't going to make it out alive. There, there's no way uh, one person taking on a whole village of people who clearly are armed, heavily armed. I wasn't going to to make that up, make it out alive up there, um, which would then put my, my soldiers in danger as well. And, uh, unnecessarily. So, um, you know, we had the high ground, there was no reason for me to go down into this village again. Um, and my soldiers needed me to be there for them, to lead them, to, uh, make sure that they were positioned correctly so that they weren't having a friendly fire, uh, incident or anything like that, to make sure that they had the ammunition and everything else that they needed to repel this attack. And I, the thought came across my mind, like if I was to go and do something stupid like this, you know, what would happen to some of these guys? Uh, what would happen if, if I did survive, would I be able to look their, their parents or their wives or their children in the eye and say, Hey, your, your loved one's no longer here because I lost my cool and I couldn't handle, uh, the, the grief that I was going through. Um, you know, could, or, you know, on the other hand, too, I, I didn't want my parents to lose a second child in the same day. Uh, I didn't want my wife to become a widow. And I had a newborn son at home. I, I didn't want him to grow up without a father. You know, all of those things ran through my head. And I said, OK, this is my my mission now is I'm going to do my my absolute best at my job right now so I can make it out of here alive. And that all the guys that I'm here with, that they also make it out of here alive. And, and that was my, that was my new mission. Um, you know, whatever it took, I, I was going to do it to, to make sure that I, I got out of there safely and that, that everyone else was, was safe as well. Scott, you clearly are a better man than I am. Um, I have been in, in moments of that, well, what my body perceived as that depth of that, that magnitude and I certainly know that I have seen red. I have, I have, there was not even a thought of being cool. The anger 
or so overwhelming, so visceral, so deeply ingrained that there was not a shred of sense occupying any part of my brain. So the sheer fact that, that you have been able to do so speaks highly of you because you're quite right. All the arguments that you made are so true. Now, nowadays, I agree with you. Nowadays, I I feel like you. Nowadays, I have got the, the, the skill and the mindset that I can extract myself out of the situation. But there, there was a time in my life when I clearly could not. So this could have well ended up different for you, but it did not. Um, that was that moment. So you kept your shit together and you actually let your man and that was then. Then what? That firefight was over, that within an hour, two, three, four, the the situation was de-escalated. The guys probably melted away into nothing. No one ever find anything. Um, that kind of shit and you're left with frustration. Did any of your men get hurt in the ambush? Uh, the guys who were directly uh, under my my. Con uh my command uh, did not get get injured uh, in that ambush uh, or in that firefight, which was fortunate. We did have a few people uh, who did have some injuries. None were serious uh, injuries. So, so we were very fortunate in that, that regards that, that no one was, no one was killed in that firefight uh, and no one, uh, no Americans anyways were, were killed in that firefight and, and no one was seriously injured either. Um, but after, after that firefight was over, um, we did have some people who were wounded, uh, you know, that, that did need to, to get out. So we did have a, uh, you know, a helicopter come in and, and evacuate, uh, some of these people. And, uh, I was one of the people who was, was getting evacuated as well, because, uh, the, the commanding officer knew that I was in no condition to continue fighting. That, that is what I, I was hoping to hear. Um, yeah. because it is, it is sometimes it is not possible. It is not possible, depending upon the, the situation on the ground, there might not be someone else there to help. It might just be, I mean, if this was, um, if this was any major offensive that was going on at the same time, there is no, no chance. So, okay, let's not be silly there. But you got out, out of that immediate setting and did you get flown or did you find a way to, to get to your brother? Yeah. So I was flown from that village, that remote village to Bagram air base, which was like the main air base in, in the region. And that's where our, our brigade command was. And so that's where, where basically everything flowed through that, that, uh, that base. Um, it also happened to be where my brother was taken, uh, after he was killed, um, and actually there were two soldiers, my brother and, and another soldier was killed the same day, uh, on that same mission. And so, um, they both were taken there and I was told that uh, they were going to get me home as, as soon as humanly possible. And, uh, in military transport times, uh, I, I got home in, in record speed. Uh, it, it was, it was nothing like every time I tell people, uh, how fast I got home, they are in complete disbelief. So my brother was killed, uh, on August 22nd of 2010. And, uh, I was home in the United States on August 24th, which is just 
earth shattering how fast that that was uh, because most people it takes uh, uh, at least four or five days if not a week or two to to make it home just because of waiting for flights and everything like that but i i'm sure i got bumped to the front of every line uh on every flight that that i was trying to take out of there um but the the flight that i took out of afghanistan was actually the same on the same cargo plane as my brother was on uh, so um uh, there was a ceremony, uh, like a formal ceremony. Um, it, it was similar to what a like a wake would be before a funeral, uh, where where you have people coming and paying their condolences, paying the, paying respects, and all that stuff. Um, and it was a bunch of senior military leadership and uh, even civilian contractors, people from foreign militaries. Uh, there was a Polish army, and uh, I think. There's one or two other countries that were were there. I, I don't I don't remember all of them at, uh, on top of my head here, but um, you know they they came through and and paid their respects. Uh, but I felt very fortunate to be able to be there during that that ceremony because I was uh, I, I was like a family representative for my brother to to be there and, and accept those condolences and and it was uh, some by some grace of God or something. I don't know how, how I managed to keep it together throughout the whole uh, ordeal, but th this was the day after he was killed. And, and it was just, it was still such a raw thing. I think I was just still in shock and disbelief at what was happening. Um, but it was, it was comforting to know how many people cared and how many people took time out of their day and came out and paid their respects, um, you know, uh, high ranking generals and, and things like that coming out and, and, and everything. And it, it just, it just was very comforting to, to be there for that. Um, and then uh, from there we flew to Kuwait and that's where I had to part ways with my brother. Uh, he, he went to um, there, I guess they have a, a medical processing kind of facility there. And, and that, then he would continue his journey. Um, I, I continued that, that same day I, I was in Germany. And then, uh, the next day I was in, uh, Atlanta and then I was home in Connecticut. Uh, so, so it was a very, very quick trip for me. Um, and when, when I left my brother, um, it was something that was very hard for me to do. Uh, when I, when I left, him in Kuwait because in the military, we have this thing that is ingrained in you from day one of basic training where it's, you, you'll never leave a fallen soldier. And when that fallen soldier is your own brother, it just is, it makes it so much worse when you're told you have to leave him here and you have to continue on. Um, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, it, it made sense because I was, I was more valuable to my family back home than I was going to be to him uh, there. But it, it was just one of those things that it, even still, I can't believe that I had to leave him behind. You know, it, it was just a really hard thing for me to do. I could feel your pain. Yet at the same token, I'm, I'm so pleased for you that you were able to be there at Bagram Air Base. Um, to, for complete sake, I want to mention the name of the soldier, uh, of, of the brother, or of, of the, 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 the soldier who was killed with your brother, and that's Tristan Southworth. Um, yeah. He was on that day, uh, his life was taken away as well. 
and here you were at least there to take the condolences whilst for Tristan that was there was no one there and equally there is another positive another difference there because you were able to go home and be there and explain things to your parents because they would have been shell-shocked absolutely shell-shocked and there within a short period of time they had you back they had you there as as someone who can keep the cool if you it doesn't matter now if you want to be in that role or not sometimes it can be so powerful to be that person who keeps standing and can focus on making arrangements, can focus on on functioning as a leader when in actual fact you want to actually curl up in a ball and, and want to cry your, your eyes out. Um, was that the case for you? Was were you were you throwing yourself into the things that you could do? Or did you allow yourself at that stage already to grieve? You know, I I found it very difficult to pick that grief back up that I, I had to put down that that day when that firefight started. I, I found it very hard to to grieve the way people normally would grieve. Um, but I, I did find that I would throw myself into things that I was capable of doing. Um, you know, I, I think I thought about my my parents. Um, you know, we had uh, hit my my brother. My brother had his estate and they had to go through a, a probate court, which is you know a way to kind of divide his assets and, and things like that amongst the the surviving you know uh, relatives and, and things like that. And um, I, I thought to myself, that's that's something that no parent should ever have to do for their child. And so I said, well, I'm just going to do it. Uh, I I didn't have a clue how to how to go about doing it. I, I'm have no, I was not a lawyer. I, I didn't have any background in this, uh, you know, and I screwed it up several times. I actually had to go back to, to the court several times to, uh, you know, complete the paperwork the right way. And, and it, it was just such a nightmare. Um, you know, I always tell anyone who's, whoever is in a situation like that, just, just hire a lawyer to have them handle it for you because it's such a nightmare and I, I'll never do that again. But, um, but but it was one of those things where I, I I thought to myself I can do this. There's no reason why I I can't do it, um, and I don't want my parents to have to do this because it's just something that that they shouldn't need to do. Um, you know, no no parent should ever have to worry about their children's uh, affairs after after they pass away it's just not natural for parents to outlive their their children that in that way and and so I, I wanted to do whatever I could to help um you know uh I also had taught myself how to build websites um, when I was in college my my father started a consulting business and I asked him if there was anything that I could help with, with to get this business started. And I knew it was just him at the time. And he said, well, I need a website. So figure it out and, and build me a website. I was like, well, I, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, go buy a book and figure it out. So, so I did. And, um, and so I, I bought a book and I, I built the site and uh, by today's standards, it was 
pretty much crap, but you know, but by by those standards back in the early 2000s, it wasn't too bad. Um, and I had I had been just playing with building websites over time, and I, I just taught myself more and more and I got better and better at it. And by the time uh, my, my brother was killed, I, I decided, you know what, I, I want to put together some sort of memorial website to uh, have one place where, where people can go and uh, look at pictures and videos and, and things like that. And I, I wanted to make sure that there was a place that people can go in private uh, and, you know, all, all it takes is an internet connection and a computer. And, uh, you know, you can, you can pull this up and you can look at these memories, uh, of my brother and look at them as frequently or as infrequently as you want and, and just grieve in your own way. And I wanted to do that for the, for the, everyone in our family and, and his friends. I, I just wanted there to be somewhere for people to go and, and look at this stuff. And, and so that's what I did with that, uh, that website. I, I built that, um, because it was, it was again, just something I could do. And I, I wanted to keep busy and, and do whatever I could to help other people in their own, uh, grieving process, wherever o- along the journey that they were. And that's such a beautiful thing and such an important thing to do. If you think about it, the the soldiers that were uh, around Stephen and who were who were close with him, they had him ripped out of their their midst, and they had to continue because the next firefight was just waiting around the corner. They didn't have time to grieve. They didn't have time to deal with their emotions. They maybe later, but pretty certain that their, their grief was deli- delayed as well. Yet here you are providing them with a memory that then triggers their own memories, which is beautiful. That's you right. actually allowed a way for others to bring closure to their own journey with Stephen. And to a certain degree, there would have been a lot of soul searching for you as well. So, to I mean, this was to a degree a a, full, a wonderful way of dealing with things, I guess, for you. But we are talking a very tumultuous time because here you were in the middle of Afghanistan, and suddenly you're ripped out, and you're back in the United States. Hello, hello. I mean, you were to a certain degree lucky because you had not yet taken lives you had not yet crossed that threshold that other soldiers do the true visceral combat life and death combat often hand hand to hand and that is crossing a line that some people never can come back from you had not yet been there and Maybe to a certain degree, that was that spoke in your favor. But you had trouble getting back into civilian life. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, this is you initially were distracted by all the, the provisions to be made and and things to be to be there for your parents. But that's a week, two, three weeks. Then what? Right. Um. Those initial few weeks, I think you you said it very well. I was consumed with all the distractions, all the preparations that need to be made, and, and everything like that. And it it made 
that time go by a little bit easier because I had something to focus on. I had something to do. And after that, I found myself sort of slipping and spiraling out of almost out of control. Um, I was still very angry. Uh, I would, I would get angry and frustrated at the smallest little things that, that would take place. Um, my, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, I had a, a young child at home. Uh, he was about nine months old when I got home from Afghanistan and, you know, like children do, he would cry over something and, you know, that's normal. It's completely normal for a child to cry over, over things, but I would feel like such a complete and utter failure when I couldn't soothe him, when I couldn't get him to stop crying. And, uh, I, I noticed that, um, I would, I would get frustrated and angry at myself over, over this. And I, I would just, I would be so mad over little things like that. Um, you know, even, even when, um, you know, things wouldn't go right at work, I would, I would just go, I would blow up and I, I would just be almost out of control. Uh, there's a story that I talk about in my, my book where our, our dog at the time, she was, she was sick and she threw up on our bedroom carpet and it was a white carpet. And which is probably the worst place to, to throw up on. <laughs> and, but to make matters worse, she was just inches away from the bathroom, which had a tile floor, which would have been so much easier to clean. And so I found myself yelling and screaming at this dog, just completely out of control. And, you know, when you think about it, the dog's sick. So me yelling at the dog, isn't going to make her feel any better. Um, and even if it did like, the dog can't understand me. She's, she's a dog. She doesn't know what I'm saying. She knows I'm mad about something. She, I don't think she understands what I'm mad about. And it's not going to change the situation anyways. So in that moment, I realized just how far I had come from the person that I was. Because prior to going to Afghanistan, I was a very easygoing person. Very, It took a lot to get me upset over things. It, it really did. Um, but I... I had a lot of things working against me. So I, I dealt with insomnia after coming back where I, I just, I couldn't sleep for, for anything. And so in order to get to sleep, I would either rely on uh, sleeping pills or um, I would just drink to make myself pass out later on at night. And uh, you know, I, I would just drink myself to sleep and then I'd wake up the next morning, hung over uh, completely you know, out of it and I'd have to go to work. And so in order to shake off the cobwebs and, and get back into it, I would just keep drinking coffee and coffee throughout the day. And, you know, at first that was okay. It worked uh, for me. And, and I, I just figured, Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to sleep eventually and I'll, I'll get back to, to normal. No problem. Um, but then this was occurring later and later in the day where I was still, it would be dinner time and I was still drinking coffee and, you know, just trying to wake myself up and that then affected my sleep even more. And so now this becomes this vicious cycle of, of, you know, drinking one thing to get myself to go to sleep and drinking another to keep myself awake. And it was just this never ending cycle and it was getting worse and worse. And I, I was getting a much shorter fuse. My attitude was, was terrible. Uh, I was just, 
a, a jerk to be around. It, it, I was, I was not fun to be around at all. Um, and, and I, I was, I, I was having a very difficult time with, with all of it. And so after that, that incident that I talked about with my dog, uh, my, my wife and I sat down and, and we we're like, this, this has to change. And I, I, I was like, yeah, I, I realize now that I am not the type of person who I want to be. And I'm especially not the type of person who I want my son to grow up around and that I want my wife to be married to. Uh, I, I want, I want better for, for all of them. Um, you know, and I, I felt like such a small little person after, after that event, because I, I was like, I can't believe that I have let myself get this far. Um, and when I first came home, there, there were these mandatory mental health screenings that, that we had to go through. And uh, where I was at the time, it was maybe about 1500 miles from, uh, from our home. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was be stuck there talking to some therapist about my problems. And so I lied through my teeth and I said, there's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong. Everything's <laughs> everything's just perfect and everything's great. And I just wanted to get back home to my family. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was spend any more time there. And, you know, then there was other uh, mental health screenings that we would go through periodically. I think, uh, you know, within the first few weeks that I came home, I, I had that first one. And then uh, a, a month later, I had another one and two months later uh, had another one. And, and, uh, you know, I, every time I, I just kept lying throughout the whole thing. One time, I think I slipped up and, and told them how much I was actually drinking. And uh, they're like, oh, that's an awful lot to be drinking. And, and I was like, oh, well, no, I, I thought you meant like over, you know, the course of the week or something like that. And, you know, they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe that's a little more reasonable of a number. But um, still, you might want to keep that in check. Um, <laughs> really, I was just talking about one night and, and, uh, so, so they, they, uh, they let me slide on that one, but, um, how much but, did you drink out of interest? It, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, uh, I don't even remember to be perfectly honest, but it, it was, how, it was how, a lot. And it, how long would it, a bottle of vodka last a liter bottle? Oh, oh, a liter. Oh gosh. Not, not too long. Um, <laughs> not, no, I mean, that's, that stuff would go quick and, and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was just one of those things where I, I didn't see any problem with it at the time. It, it just seemed like, like, okay, I'm, I'm fixing the problem. I, I, this is, this is something that I'm, I'm doing and I'm fixing it in my own way. And that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a man and just deal with it. And, you know, that's what you kind of get told growing up, like that, that's just who, who you're supposed to be. And, mm. and so I said, like, okay, well, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to deal with it. And I'm dealing with, with it in my own way. And, what I didn't realize is just how much it was affecting me and, and how poorly I was handling all of it. Um, I remember one, one Christmas, my son got a, uh, a toy for, for Christmas. And it reminded me of something that, that I had with my brother growing up as a kid. And I was just in tears over, over this thing when he opened it up and I, I was looking at, it, I was in tears and, you know, of course I'd been drinking the, you know, pretty much the whole night and, <laughs> you know, so that didn't help the emotions and everything. I was just this, this sobbing mess. And, and it was just, it was just a, an ugly way to be. And, um, you know, as, as I noticed my, my attitude getting worse and worse and, uh, you know, I, I, 
I would do this thing with uh, where I would like grit my teeth and whenever I would get frustrated and mad. And I, I started noticing my my son was doing the same thing as, as he got a little bit older. And he he was, you know, like children do, they they learn from watching their parents and they kind of mimic their their behaviors and things like that. And and so anytime he would get mad at something, you know, it's nap time or, or whatever, he would grit his teeth and he would have the same ugly, angry face that I had. And and I I was like, what am I doing? What kind of father am I being for this kid? And and so that that just made me feel even smaller and smaller and smaller. And it just made me feel so terrible. So eventually I realized uh, I'm not doing very a very good job on my own here. I, I need to get some help. Um, and that's when uh, I contacted the, what time the frame therapist. We, what time frame are oh. we talking about here? Yeah, so this was, a, this was about... Uh, just ballpark, maybe six to nine months or so after getting back from Afghanistan. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that it didn't last longer before I started getting help. Um, you know, when I, when I started getting help though, it was the scariest thing for me. Um, because I didn't, it was a big fear of the unknown. Uh, I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I didn't really know anybody who had gone to, uh, any sort of counseling or, or mental health treatments. Uh, well, at least I, I, turns out I did know people, at least we just didn't talk about it. And so I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and so when I made that first phone call, I was so nervous. Um, I, I didn't know if it was going to be one of those things where I was going to be taken away to a hospital or, or something where I was going to be you know, kept at a location to make sure that I was, I was okay or whatever. I, I just didn't know what the situation was going to be like. Um, but, but after I made the first appointment, uh, it, it was just a phone call I, and it was, they, they made sure that I was okay, that I wasn't going to hurt myself or anything like that, which I wasn't. Um, but after I made that first phone call, there was a huge weight that was lifted off my shoulders um, because I knew that I wasn't going to have to carry the burden of my past by myself. Not, not that anyone else was going to take that burden for me, but they were going to help me figure out how to carry it. Uh, so, you know, kind of you think about it in the physical world, everyone tells you lift with your legs, because if you lift with your back, you're going to throw your back out. Right. Well, I was lifting with my back with all this stuff and it was causing me a lot of pain. Um, I needed someone there to show me how to lift with my legs and, and carry the, the, the weight that I was carrying around in a healthier way and, and be able to uh, manage the emotions that I was dealing with, because those were pretty heavy emotions that, that I was going through um, and manage them in a way that, that made it so that I could continue to live life and enjoy life. And that's you're so you're so right the way you you described it it is so bizarre it is it is one of the scariest things you can do as a man and uh and when i mean we are talking men here because we have been pushed into this role model of being strong being reliable being the leader being the father the you name it we are it and there is there is yeah, it is. It is just a very, very weird life that we live. If you now look at at women, uh, the girls, are, women are essentially not so different from us. 
nowadays women are trying to fulfill so many roles in their lives from mummy to being sexy lover to being CEO being everything and they're spreading themselves as thin as we are and luckily women talk maybe naturally a little bit more Many leaders don't, so the girls can be just as bad. But this is really, today we are talking to boys here amongst us. And, and I think this is, this is really important because we are even more likely to keep our mouth shut. And for us, it is the biggest step ever to actually seek help. Yet, once you have done it once, it is suddenly such a beautiful thing. I mean, uh, guys, right now, just us, us between uh, Scott and me, just chatting here. That is an hour of therapy, because I'm, I'm honoured that he is ripping the, the my sunglasses off. I have to look into the mirror here. I'm, I'm feeling some of the pain from the past, and I get to deal with it, and that's beautiful. Whilst prior to, to your awakening or to your transformation, the two of us, we were the only glasses we were looking through were very thick glasses that are on the bottom of a bottle. And, and I looked down there in many of them. There is nothing down there. No, 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 no. Oh, well, there's, a, there's something down there. Pain, uh, anxiety, hangovers. We call it hangxiety. So you, you're not just left with the same anxiety, but now you've got a hangover on top. Hangxiety. Great, great. Plus guilt and shame. Yay! What a day to wake up to. So, right. oh, fuck. What did your wife say with all that? I mean, here you were. You came home there and you were a different man. And probably she let a few things slide um, because, after all, you just had lost your brother. Um but nine months is a long time for you to be an asshole um, at home. How did that go? Yeah, and and I think you hit the nail on the head there. I was pretty much an asshole <laughs> while, I, while I was home. And uh, she was an absolute saint. She she gave me space. Um, you know, she, she had about a nine-month head start on learning how to be a parent. Uh, from me because I was I was gone that entire time uh, pretty much I, I was home for the birth of my son for about ten days or so so that's not even enough to get your feet wet and, and learning how to be a, a parent but um, you know when when I got home she just continued being the parent uh, and let me catch up in my own time and so she she was just. A, a complete rock star. She was taking care of all the things that needed to be taken care of at, at home and, and let, giving me the space to process what I needed to process. And, um, you know, when, when her and I sat down and, and we, we realized, you know, that this, something's wrong and it's just not, not working out the way, way it should. Uh, she guided me in the right direction to say, yeah, I think you do need to go get some help, but it, it wasn't like in a nagging way. Like, like you would, you would say, Oh, well, so because you're always doing this and you're always doing it, you know, whatever. It, it was not like that. It, it, it was, Hey, you know, I, I recognize that that something's not quite right with you. And uh, I wanted to give you space to kind of deal with it on your own, but it seems like you're just not getting there. And, and you might need some help. And, and so 
so I took that as, all right, get, get off your ass and go get some help. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, it was a good reality check and, and made me realize that I, I do need to get some help and, and it's okay to go get help uh, for, for things like that. Did you seek help through the army or did you get help independently of it? Yeah. So I, I got help through the army. Um, they, they have, um, the department of veterans affairs and they have mental health counseling and, and various services through, through there, uh, as well. And so I went, went through them to, to get the the help that, that I, I needed through the, the counseling services that they had available. And, you know, at, at first it really helped. It really did. Um, it, it helped me process some of the anger and not get, be so quick to, to, start yelling and screaming at, at, at things that didn't need to yelling and screaming at. Um, and it helped me kind of get my drinking under control. So I, and, and ultimately the drinking was a function of not sleeping well. And so, um, you know, I, I was, once when I got that anxiety under control and that, that some of the guilt and other issues that I was going through under, under control, it helped me not need to drink as much. And so, um, that, that problem kind of took care of itself, which is good. And then, then that kind of got me out of that vicious cycle that I was talking about before that I was in. And, and once when I got, uh, through that, so I, I went to that, that counseling for about two years, uh, almost two years, a little, little shy of two years. And, uh, that was right about the time when I moved from Connecticut to Arizona, where I am now. Mm. And I, I decided, you know what, I, I may not be a hundred percent perfect, but I think I'm in a, a good enough place that I can handle this on my own now. Mm. And so I, I decided uh, with that move, I, I was just going to make a clean break from, from the, the counseling. I wasn't going to continue going or anything. And I wanted to just uh, see how I would do on my own. Um, and I was okay for a little while. Um, and then, then I noticed I started to slip back into some of the old habits. Uh, I was, I was having, uh, having trouble sleeping. I was, I was having trouble, uh, you know, where, where I found myself drinking too much and, uh, you know, just getting back into those old routines and I was getting angry a lot too. And, and it was, it was that old, ugly self that, that kept popping back up. And I said, okay, well, I need to do something about this again. And, and I decided, you know, I, I need to go. And, and I went back to the Veterans Affairs and, and talked with, with people there. And, um, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to say I, I still go to, to counseling. I still still get help. Um, you know, it's something that I, I think is worthwhile to do, to invest time in, in your mental health. Um, you know, when, when you think about your physical health, you know, you, you might go to a uh, your, your doctor once a year for a physical, uh, you might get a colonoscopy or, you know, the ladies might get a mammogram or, you know, whatever it is you, you go and you, you get these, these procedures and, and just general checkups just to make sure there's nothing popping up that that's out of place or that, that shouldn't be there. You get your blood work done and, and you check to see if your cholesterol or, and all that, you get all that stuff done. And nobody thinks twice about that. Nobody says, Oh my gosh, you, you went to, go get your cholesterol checked. Like that's, that's crazy. Why would you do something like that? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, because I kind of like being here and I want to stick around for a little while. And if there's something wrong, I want to, I want to find out sooner than later. Nice. And, and so when, when you had, 
when, when you have something like, like um, your mental health, why should it be any different? Why, why should it be that you, you don't go and just get a little checkup every once in a while, just make sure things are, are, are working the way they're supposed to be. And, and that you're, you're not going to slip into, uh, you know, a, another bad place, you know, and, and sometimes once and you're in that bad place, it's, it's hard to get out, but if you catch it before, uh, it's, it's easier. It's almost like a cancer where, where if you catch that cancer early, it's, it's easier to get rid of. But if you wait until it, it spreads to the rest of your body, it's in some points, it's almost impossible to get rid of. Um, you know, it's maybe not the same exact thing. It, it may not be a perfect analogy, but it's, it's a, another way of thinking of it. You know, if, if we can nip these things before they get too big, uh, then, then it just makes it that much easier to deal with. I could not agree more. And I love the way you have put it because ultimately counseling is such a weird word. I think it's life coaching. I would rather like that word, although that has a bit of a, of a bad rap. I think just you surrounding yourself with people who have been there, done that, and dealt with something, that can be extremely powerful. Let let me do another analogy. Let's say you want to get into the restaurant business, and you have got the money, you buy yourself a restaurant. Well, you have no clue how to do that. You have no idea. So you probably put a power team together. You probably put an accountant in there who actually deals with other restaurateurs you probably put uh, an experienced maitre d' into the front you you know you get some good chefs etc so you make sure you're the dumbest idiot in the whole team so because that's how you grow why are we not doing the same thing with our mental health we have got a supercomputer up here but no one has given us a user manual now, there are some of these guys out there that actually know a little bit about that supercomputer, and they can help us. And some of them come with labels as psychologists. Some of us need a bit more help, psychiatrists, so when really something is broken and needs a bit more fixing, but the psychologists, the counselors, the life coaches hypnotherapists, there are a whole bunch of guys out there who are specializing in that dark matter up there and it is beautiful it is beautiful when they hold the mirror in front of your face and reflect back what you're saying and maybe also reflect back what you're not saying and there's, uh, there's so many things out there so i have got i've made so many breakthroughs by just talking to people and listening to people uh it's no longer funny and my journey will continue until I'm dead. And I think that is what you've, you just described. The whole incident happened in 2010. We are now 2021, turning 2022. For crying out loud, that's 11 years. Um, you would think, ah, oh, come on, when will he finally be finished with grieving? That's not really what we're talking about. There are constantly no. new challenges. There are constantly new developments. There's new trauma. There's complex trauma. Um, there might be some shit that's happening now that suddenly stirs up very distant memories from the past. So you've got this kind of complex relationship going on. There is so much out there where we can actually 
just stop for a moment and actually say, shit, I mean, right now I'm really struggling. Time to actually talk to someone about it. And maybe your spouse, your partner is maybe not the right person. It's okay to steam off from now and then and really go, bleh, dump. That's okay. But don't expect really someone to do it psychologically sort of reflect back to you and maybe guide you towards a solution. Uh, very few spouses are, are made of that caliber or had that training. No, you want to have someone who actually does that for a living or at least has a damn good idea of what they are doing. Um, then, you know, that is where you start. Yeah, uh, for sure. Scott, you, I mean, what a, what a beautiful transformation you have gone through. Uh, you for certain have not chosen <laughs> that that catalyst, and you have not chosen to be the man you uh, you are now. Having said that, you are now this new guy, this new Scott, who is going out there and is trying to help others. That's why you've written your book. Show us your book so that that people know what to get and to learn more about your story. So the book uh, here, Surviving Son, um, it's available on Amazon. So you can get that it, wherever wherever you're located. It, it's pretty easy to, to mm. just jump on Amazon. These, these days you can get anything on Amazon. So why not my book too? Um, exactly. But um, but yeah, it's available in, in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle formats. Um, I'm working on the audiobook version that, that's a oh, process nice. in and of itself. So nice. um, so that might be a few more months down the road uh, nice. for, for that to come out. But, um, you know, the uh, Amazon's the best place to go to to grab a copy of the book. Um, I, I really encourage people to to get that. Not, you know, obviously as an author, you want people to read your work, but um, you know, the reason why I wrote the book is not only to tell my story and and some of the things that we talked about today, um, but I wanted it to be a, a tribute to my brother as well. Uh, obviously, he's no longer here to tell his own story, and. I wanted to be able to do that for him and, and be able to share uh, who he was, what his life was like, and, and the actual person behind the sacrifice that was made, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's really uh, what it was all about for, for me. And, and I, but I do, I do want people to also learn uh, not only about the sacrifices, but about the mistakes that I've made, learn from my mistakes. You know, there's no reason why everyone has to make the same mistakes. Um, you know, I, I, I made them, um, but God, I, I, I can only hope that, that everyone else can, can learn from that and uh, not make those, those kind of mistakes uh, in their own lives. How beautiful is that? I mean, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Those of you who want to learn more about Scott, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. I've put all his social media links in there. And whilst you're down there, you might as well press the like button on that uh, show and maybe do the subscribe button whilst you're there. Would be stupid not to, because I've got so many beautiful guests on my show where I continue to learn every single interview I do and I'm, I'm grateful Scott to you today and to any other uh, guest who has been on my show and who will come in the future because all of these wonderful people are changing me so every interview changes me makes me a bit of a richer man uh, emotionally uh, mentally maybe one day I might even become a bit wiser 
Yeah, that's still, I'm not sure about that. Uh, um, <laughs> there is still hope, okay, guys? I've still got, yeah, got, exactly. I've got still 50 years to go. So come on, at least. <laughs> so, Scott, no, you're an amazing man. Thank you very much for, for going out there and leaving a legacy for, for sharing your your story. And with that uh, shining light on, on the suffering of so many other uh, soldiers who are coming back, struggling to, to get back into civilian life. And it's the more we can talk about these things, which are ultimately stories of, of loss, stories of losing oneself, stories of loss of love, or never having the chance to finding love to oneself. Often we are broken from a very early stage, but the, the cool thing is the past does not equal the future. Every single second you get to make new choices. And why not change your life? Why not make the choice to pick up the phone and, and phone a counseling number? Hey, Why not seek that help? What have you got possibly got to lose? What could possibly go wrong? It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to keep your mouth shut and suffer in silence, or worse, make other people suffer because you don't get your shit together. So now, go out there. I believe in you guys. Stay strong and look after yourselves. Dream on.